Hello and a very warm welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, looking at DFM portfolios and what's going on under the bonnet. I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor on sister title Investors Chronicle. And with me today are Joseph Wilkins, a funds reporter on Asset Allocator, and David Thorpe, contributing editor on Asset Allocator. So both, uh, thanks for coming in again. How are you doing? Thank you. Very well. Very well. So let's uh, get straight into it. You know, we often look at, I suppose, kind of where DFMs are allocating, um, you know, what kind of funds they're favouring and so on. But, uh, you know, I suppose a kind of something that always casts a shadow is always a big uh, issue in the, the industry is cost. You know, are you kind of picking the cheapest option? How is that feeding through to your own fees and so on? Um, so, Joseph, you guys have been like having a, a look at that and what DFMs are doing on that front. Um, what have you been kind of finding out? Sure. So we've been uh, running a few articles about costs, uh, one of which will, will come out very soon. And we really want to get inside the minds of allocators and understand how they view fees uh, as part of their fund selection process, um, whether or not cost matters to them and whether or not they'd pay more. Uh, for better funds or, or where whether they're looking to economise um, themselves. Um, and first we, we did a, a scan through the database uh, and we found out that they're on average choosing marginally cheaper funds than, than the sector averages for, for actively managed funds, uh, only by a couple of basis points, but still um, reasonably significant. Um, and then we thought, obviously, best to, best to speak to them. Um, and yeah, fees are certainly a consideration, although not the overriding factor when choosing a fund. I think that's, that's more or less to be expected with with other things such as performance um, and manager selection, things like that. Um, uh, in fact, one allocator said, "Price is what you pay; value is what you get," um, and that seemed to guide their thinking. Uh, and they'd be willing to pay more for a fund that they thought would be worth it, uh, in essence. Um, yeah, so it and a lot of the ways to to economise uh, is often becoming almost like a seed investor. So getting into mm. a fund from the start, some of the bigger f- uh, fund uh, selectors were were looking to get in early uh, if they trusted the manager beforehand, and that would be a good way to save money because often the the costs are, uh, are less at the at the outset. Yeah, yeah the charges are are lower if you're a founder share class. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I, that is one. And the other thing is obviously the, the segregated mandate route, which which we noticed that firms such as Brew and Dolphin, who are one of the biggest mm. dogs of all, and Waverton and uh, a few others, that they that's, that's the route that they're going down and really trying to use that scale. And if the current pattern of consolidation in the wealth management industry continues, we'll probably see more of that more 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 seggies and more founder share classes i mean again with seggy you need quite considerable scale with founder share class less so but but it is still a, a scale play you know i couldn't ring up at my you know 50 quid a month i send say well i'm the founder can i have uh, founder share class please um and then i guess the other big trend is many of the dfms are trying to move from um from model uh portfolios to to sort of bespoke um uh discretionary management and if the, if they're bespoke that probably gives them more opportunity both to uh charge a slightly higher fee uh, but also to um allocate to a broader range of funds 
which again means that maybe they can they can fish in waters where they have more economic power. Mm. I suppose what's interesting on the consolidation points is, you know, there are ever fewer kind of buy lists and then funds are therefore like, you know, having to sort of curry favour with fewer people. So perhaps you'll see even more sway for those DFMs who do sort of get bigger and remain, right? So perhaps you should see even more um, clout when it comes to pricing and the kind of concessions that fund providers might actually make. For sure, for sure. Yeah, you've got that scenario where I guess the client really doesn't want to pay more than 2% for everything and uh, the advisor obviously knows the client so they've got their bit of pricing power and the... uh, the wealth manager has the scale, so they potentially have their bit of pricing power. And it's the poor old asset manager who, uh, who, uh, <laughs> who who's, taking, who's taking the bite there. Um, even the platform arguably has some pricing power because it's notoriously difficult uh, to switch platform and mm. uh, comparatively few uh, advisors ever do that. So uh, we'll, we'll get the small violins out for the uh, <laughs> exactly uh, absolutely yeah. the small violins get a lot of airing in asset allocator newsletters. So there you go. <laughs> um, yes, they do almost as many as the uh, as the uh, carrier pigeon that brings us forth all the stories. Oh, the famous carrier pigeon. <laughs> and and there, are there any kind of areas where um, perhaps DFMs are paying more, or any interesting kind of outliers that we've come across so far? Uh, yes, yeah, so. Um, I think one of the most uh, competitive uh, sectors on price at the moment is in Japan. Um, so we we notice that not only does Japan run cheaper funds, but there are some of the cheapest funds overall uh, across all sectors there. Um, we we found that um, the Belly Gifford uh, offerings were very cheap, but mm. when on a closer look at performance. Uh, They've actually been sort of bottom quartile over one, three, and five years. Yes, and so a rough period. For yes, those funds. and 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 so that's an ex- a good example of you know price prices and everything. And I'm sure they'd rather pay you know ten basis points more for a fund that actually returned um, for, for investors. So and, and it's quite ironic because Bailey Gifford are one of the first. They're, they're sort of. Their signature dish for a long time as a fund house was their Japan strategy, mm. and then obviously mm. it morphed into tech-related uh, stuff being their being their signature dish. But it is interesting that even that, that they that they've struggled in um, in Japan. But but um, you know one, one would look at it and say Japan's very tech-enabled or has lots of tech-enabled companies, and that should allow Bailey Gifford to uh, exploit their USP. But it doesn't seem to have worked that way, as you say, based on our, our proprietary database and on performance tables. Mm. Yeah, it does seem like one of those big franchises that has slightly come off the boil in the last couple of years, doesn't it? And now <laughs> you're getting people sort of deciding whether to whether that's just a blip or um, you know whether they need to sort of change their choices a little bit. But <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, Sarah Whitley, I think, was the the yeah. original Bailey Gifford Japan manager, and. Uh, she uh, she retired, and uh, since then I think there have been um, various issues of both performance and, and demand for those ones. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's um, move over to, I suppose, more our, our kind of bread and butter, looking at uh, kind of allocations and, um, you know, how DFMs are getting their exposure. So, you know, one of the star regions, once again, I suppose, of, of Asia and EM has been India, it did have some difficult years and it really returned to form. And, you know, of course, 
investing in China is a bit more of a complicated question now, so it's easier perhaps to think somewhere else. Um, but you guys have kind of taken a look at what DFMs are doing uh, directly and indirectly when it comes to um, Indian exposure. Yes. Um, so obviously there are probably two main ways to, to invest in India. It's either through a EM fund or an Asian fund, um, which obviously has India, but it also has um, you know the region as well, or by going through one of these Indian-only uh, funds. Um, and so first we looked and tried to see whether if you went through the, the um, Asia route, whether you could get a decent Indian exposure there. Um, and actually, it's not so much the case. Uh, the most popular funds in our database only really allocated about in the region of 10% to India, um, which if you are looking to take advantage of that market, you, you'd have to either pick very specifically uh Stuart investors run an indian fund with uh, sorry an, an asian fund with uh 40% to 45% in india but on the whole it's 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 reasonably low um and so there are you know for for those who want to invest in in india going via this growing uh sector of indian only funds it seems to be a better way to get your you know your 100% um yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of trusts, and uh, yeah, they're, they're not widely used at the moment, uh, the, the Indian-only funds amongst our allocators, but it certainly seems to have turned a corner, and I think we might see more interest in the future. Demand for Indian equities has been, it's, that market has become bigger than the Beatles, whereas China, which was fashionable a few years ago, is now about as big as wings. Um, <laughs> but basically, I mean, it, it's a testament to how big India was that they managed to get the Ashoka Investment Trust uh, off on the London Stock Exchange uh, not that long ago, and it's, it's been very difficult for people to get a trust away, and, and they got that one away. India's story is obviously well documented. It's got the positive demographics that... China no longer has. It's got the uh, emerging middle class, which has been the staple uh, uh, bull case for emerging markets for uh, decades. But it is interesting, uh, as you say, that that allocators or that Asian uh, and regional funds haven't been uh, overloading there. I I, I think some some of the people that we speak to would would talk about valuation being a, a concern and that maybe the corporate governance um or political uh, risk is relevant in India and maybe that that's underappreciated relative to uh, those con- concerns in China which are which are well documented mm. for sure for sure yeah yeah it's interesting I mean I'd wonder if DFM's a um I don't know it must be quite easy I would think to be pretty risk averse when it comes to a single country fund because you know you've seen chart What's been happening in China in recent years has really dem- demonstrated how kind of up and down a region can be. And similarly, you know, you had the, you have a bunch of Vietnam trusts that really shot the lights out, but then in more recent times got hit quite badly. So I suppose, you know, if your perspective is someone who has to kind of explain their performance and so on, then it's maybe it's easy to kind of like shelter in the relative safety of you know a middle ground of kind of like an em fund or an asia fund and Mm. not really take those kind of quite punchy vents if you do an em or asia fund then you're essentially outsourcing the asset asset allocation to a regional 
fund manager, whereas if you buy the India fund for your clients yourself, then you're doing the asset allocation for your client. Yes. And you have to uh, explain to your client why why you thought India was uh, such a, 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 a good um, idea. It is surprising that China is still the... The dominant force in these funds. Well, well in the emerging, obviously, mm. obviously, the Chinese stock market is the um, biggest uh, component of the emerging markets index. Mm. So um, people would be, I guess, reluctant to go very sharply underweight the index in case they're wrong, and then they really look like they really look like a fool relative to you know having a modest underweight or mm. or a benchmark weight. Um, although you know what what I've just said there is probably the greatest um, advertisement for not doing active management if they're not willing to do active. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. A lot of them do still still seem quite kind of benchmark strong. I mean, you mentioned the Stuart Investors one. That's they're quite interesting funds just because they they're so like stock specific and they just don't. And some of their kind of frameworks mean they just have not really liked kind of Chinese yeah. stocks for for a long time. Mm. Stuart Investors. That's one of the. Uh, Firms that emerged from the the first state business, I think is that is that right, Dave? I think there was some sort of split. Yeah, I believe so. I don't, I can't remember the ins and outs, but I suppose the interesting thing to note about Stuart is they tend to they tend to have that kind of ethical, sustainable kind of framework, and they like kind of companies with um, strong founder presences and 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 so on. And um, they're very kind of tend to be very um, bottom up. Um, perhaps we should turn finally to uh, home ground. Um, you guys have also been looking at kind of what's going on in the database when it comes to kind of UK growth funds. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what's happening there? Uh, well, we have a new favourite UK growth fund among our allocators, and that happens to be the iShares FTSE 100 ETF, which is actually uh, <laughs> passive and it has now overtaken uh, pretty much all of the other active funds in our database um, as of around the start of this year um, and you know potentially cost is a factor here given how cheap it is uh, it's got it's about I think it's eight basis points um, compared to you know your, your Linzel train which is uh, around I think it's 65 basis points so uh, I guess for for those wanting to you know economize in the UK market, um, it's potentially a good choice. Uh, when we when we speak to global equity managers, one of the things that we hear from them is that really the reason they look to the FTSE 100 or the USP of the FTSE 100 is that exposure to oil and commodity and and cyclical type businesses. And if that's what you want, the index has has plenty of that. And arguably, there's no need to get an active manager to identify BP, for example. Everybody's heard of it. Mm. Whereas if you want, you know, something else from your UK exposure, such as you want some mid and small as well as large cap, that's what Lion Trust Special Sits does. Or if you want the um, more traditional defensive growth, although Nick wouldn't probably wish it to be called that, that's what Linzel Train offers. So it it depends on what, what you want. But the global managers uh, out there that's what they think of the UK as. I mean, they're bullish on the UK. They're bullish on the UK because of value, because of commodity prices, maybe because of higher interest rates helping banks. And that's what the uh, index uh, gives you. I think what I'd be interested to, to know, and perhaps you'll um, bother some DFMs about this, but is, is whether, you know, when you think about active UK funds, one of the ways in which they differ from 
at trackers is they you know tend to focus a bit more on smaller mid caps so it'd be interesting to know whether this is a view on large caps versus mid and small caps or whether it's more kind of you know complementary that kind of thing mm, certainly well yeah. That, that inspired my next story. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> yeah. thanks, something we can discuss on the next podcast, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, lots of interesting food for thought there, as always. Uh, but I'm afraid we are out of time. So I'd just like to thank Joseph and David for taking the time to chat once again. And we shall speak soon. Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 